0: DiscerningHearts.com presents The Doctors of the Church, the Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. Dr. Bunsen serves as the Faculty Chair of the Catholic Distance University. He is also a Senior Fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. He is the author or co-author of over 45 books, including The Pope Encyclopedia, the Encyclopedia of Catholic History, the Encyclopedia of Saints, the Encyclopedia of U.S. Catholic History, and Pope Francis. Dr. Bunsen serves as a senior contributor for EWTN. The Doctors of the Church, the Charism of Wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. Dr. Bunsen, thank you for joining me.
1: Wonderful to be with you, Chris. We are now uh, fully into the Middle Ages with uh, the doctors of the Church, and uh, we're actually talking about one of my favorite doctors today.
0: The Father of Scholasticism?
1: Indeed. Uh, St. Anselm of Canterbury, also, of course, known as uh, Anselm of uh, Aosta, and also Anselm of Beck. And I mention those uh, three different titles because it gives us uh, a helpful introduction To a man who not only was very well traveled, but uh, who has been claimed by a number of different uh, traditions and places, uh, and well he should. He was born around 1033 uh, in uh, Aosta, in what was called the Kingdom of Burgundy at the time, and died across the Atlantic in Canterbury, in England. We honor him for a variety of different reasons. He was a a Benedictine monk. He was a bishop, of course, Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, He's uh, honored as so-called founder or father of scholasticism that we can talk about. He's had a major influence in shaping the theology of certainly the the Western Church. He helped to establish a wonderful argument called uh, the ontological argument for the existence of God. Uh, He examined our Lord, especially uh, What we think of when we think of atonement, Uh, he was a great defender of the rights of the church at a time of what was called the great investiture controversy that we're going to talk about. So for all of those different reasons, uh, he was declared a doctor of the church in 1720 by Pope Clement XI.
0: Why at that particular time in history?
1: At that particular moment in history, of course, we were uh, dealing with a host of different crises emerging out of uh, the Enlightenment. Uh, Clement understood in around the year 1720 that uh, it was time to honor uh, a figure like Anselm who provided such great clarity to the Church at a time when much of Enlightenment thinking had really gained a a firm footing uh, across Europe. So we have in Anselm somebody who's been known as the Doctor Magnificus or the Magnificent Doctor, uh, somebody who really could articulate in his own time a clear understanding of the teachings of the Church, but who also, because of his gifts to scholasticism, provided such a rational basis for Christian thought, uh, for the teachings of the Church. And in that sense, at a time when Enlightenment was calling into question almost all of the church's teachings we can hold up saint anselm as a powerful figure for as i said clarity and real understanding of the relationship between faith and reason
0: it can be said that his according to one of his biographers he was an extraordinarily spiritual man very very steeped in his prayer life and could that be part of this reason for the results of his great contribution to the church.
1: Yeah, yeah. Some of his biographers, for example, uh, A. Admer, uh, who was uh, a monk who served as a secretary and also who traveled with him extensively, did much, I think, to help us understand just how holy this man was. When we're dealing with a genius like Anselm, in a way similar to uh, some of the Great figures who followed, like St. Thomas Aquinas, of course, we'll be talking about at some point in terms of the series. Anselm was holy. Doctors of the Church, one of the the great requirements for them being appointed, being named a Doctor of the Church, is is exactly that. Uh, Yes, they made huge contributions to the, the life and teachings of the Church and to our understanding of the mysteries of faith, but they're also holy. And in St. Anselm, we have somebody who was profoundly holy, who was deeply prayerful, uh, who was also inclined toward mysticism, uh, who was also deeply humble. So we have a role model in understanding the faith, but we also have in him a role model for living and loving the faith. And in that sense, it's something that we, we can't overlook especially because his love of humility, his love of mercy, were things that shaped how he served the church, especially as the Archbishop of Canterbury.
0: We've discussed this many times in the lives of the doctors of the church that their family situation can very much shape the the course of their lives. In this particular case with this extraordinary man, what was his family life like?
1: He, we know, was born in northern Italy, uh, loved the Alps. He had a kind of romantic image of the Alps, and which, which makes sense. Anyone who spends much time in northern Italy or in Switzerland, you develop a love for the mountains. But his family uh, was a noble one, and because of that... Uh, his parents, especially his father, had high expectations. His father was known as Gundolf of Candia. Uh, his mother was a Swiss. His name was Hermann Berga of Geneva. And she, however, uh, exercised a good influence on him because she was considered a woman of high virtue. It was, as uh, we've seen before with doctors of the church, a reality that his father wanted him to sort of pursue the family business, which, of course, was being a member of the nobility, uh, being part of the the feudal system, and, of course, uh, being a a nobleman. And as such, uh, the the news when Anselm was around 15 years old that uh, Anselm wanted to enter a monastery was not one that uh, his father found uh, very satisfactory. And as a result, when Anselm presented himself to the local abbot, uh, he was informed that as... His father had not given his consent. Uh, The abbot declined his admission to the monastic life. And that really sort of set poor Anselm uh, into a bit of a spiral emotionally and I think spiritually. Uh, He became ill. And when he recovered from his illness, uh, he abandoned his studies and entered into... A sort of a a period of great unrest uh, and one in which he rejected the the, the course that his family had set for him and then set off uh, to find himself, so to speak, in the world. And of course, in this time, his mother died, which further uh, estranged him, his relationship with his father and Anselm again sort of captivated by the Alps, wanted to walk across them, and, that, and that's exactly what he did. So he was at what the time was a pretty old age of 23. He left home. He crossed the Alps and just made his way, wandering uh, through the area of Burgundy and then, of course, France. And it proved to be a very fateful journey.
0: He would find himself at the doors of an abbey, knocking to come in. And at this time, they would accept him, would they not?
1: Uh, They would, yeah. Uh, There was, at the time, a, a true blessing for the church. And this is an era of great abbots of other saints. And, of course, as we have also seen with doctors of the church, saints tend to meet other saints. In this case, it was an abbot uh, who became an archbishop by the name of Lanfranc, who was himself uh, Italian by birth uh, and who would become a Benedictine monk in France and rose rapidly because of his learning, because of his holiness, because of his skills uh, within the Benedictine community. And uh, Lanfranc saw immediately the potential in Anselm and invited him to become uh, a Benedictine monk at the Abbey of Beck. And, and uh, there he stayed for quite, quite some time. Beck, of course, uh, is found in Normandy, France. So at the time, in, in Europe, you could certainly travel, you could wander. It was a dangerous undertaking even in the 11th century. And it was an adventure. It really was. And so, For someone to travel, as he did, from northern Italy all the way to Normandy in northern France, this was a providential journey. And at the age of 27, after spending a little bit of time in Avranche, France, the monastic community there, Anselm joined the abbey and became a novice and surrendered himself to the the rule of St. Benedict. And it was... Wonderful medicine for him. There he was, uh, being groomed, being transformed by the life of the Benedictines. It's striking in in two senses. One, that you have someone of Anselm's immense intellectual skills who finally felt the call, that sense of urgency to embrace, to fill himself up with the teachings of the Church with prayer life that the Benedictines could offer. But let's not overlook the fact that he was old at the time. 27, even in the 11th century, was an old age for someone to become a monk. Usually liked you to be entering the monastery at a much younger age because you weren't, at that point, set in your ways. So it's a a statement, I think, of the emotional, spiritual, and intellectual flexibility of Anselm that he was able to Embrace the Benedictine lifestyle with such vigor.
0: There's such a respect for the dignity of each of the confreres within that that community and allowing their particular gifts to flourish. And that would be nurtured by those abbots that would work with Anselm. And there would be tremendous fruit that would begin to really grow in that environment.
1: Yes, exactly, and and we see in that the the genius of uh, the Benedictine system. You know, this is uh, an era, admittedly, uh, that the the Benedictine movement, so to speak, was slowly on the decline. You're in the next century, and so you're going to have processes of reform. Uh, we're going to encounter, for example, Bernard of Clairvaux, who helped to uh, launch this huge monastic renewal, and yet. Um, The the Benedictine system was still healthy enough uh, that Anselm was able to flourish as he did. And again, the ability of the abbots, such as Lanfranc, to see the skill sets of their monks to allow them to flourish and to grow. And it was a, a wonderful lesson for Anselm as well, who went on to encourage... Uh, exactly that in other monks. He talks for example about the the right way to educate someone and he uses the analogy of of a little tree. He he makes the observation in in helping others to understand how to educate and how to prepare people for life. Uh, With the analogy of a tree, he said, you know, what is the best way for a tree to grow? Is Is it to put it in a little box in which it It cannot reach its full height in which the branches become twisted, become sickly. No, you allow a tree to flourish with light, with love, uh, with proper nourishment, and with a certain freedom to grow into its full potential. And the analogy is especially apt uh, because I think uh, in the Abbey of Beck, Anselm was given that room to fill himself up, as I was saying, uh, with the teachings of the church, with the spiritual life. And for that reason, uh, in 1063, after uh, just a few years of entering uh, the, the monastery, I mean, consider, for example, that, that Anselm arrived in, in northern France in 1059, and yet in 1063, barely four years later, When Lanfranc was made an abbot in Cannes, France, Anselm was elected uh, the prior of the Abbey of Beck. And this was a a development that uh, was a a major disappointment to some of the other monks who perhaps saw themselves as um, far more qualified than he, one monk in particular. And that rival uh, was opposed at first to Anselm being prior, and yet through patience, through diligence, through his generosity, uh, through his holiness, uh, also his skills as a leader, Anselm went on to hold this office for 15 years and became fast friends with this rival in the monastery, Uh, so much so that uh, he cared for this rival monk uh, in the last days before this, this monk's death. So typical of Anselm, he was very generous uh, toward those who at one time hated him, uh, who saw him as a rival. And sure enough, of course, after 15 years, uh, the experiences that he had as prior had prepared him to move on to even higher office.
0: We'll return in just a moment to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen.
1: This is Dr. Anthony Lillis
0: and Chris McGregor, and we invite you to join us in a a once-in-a-lifetime Discerning Hearts Trinitarian pilgrimage throughout the Holy Land. This will be a unique opportunity for contemplative prayer, spiritual teaching, and fellowship in one of the holiest areas on the earth. place is touched by the lives of Jesus, Mary, and the Apostles. During
1: this time, we will also walk closely in the company of the Prophet Elijah through the most miraculous moments in salvation history, which would later become pages in the Gospel. Along with Sister Magdalit Balduc of the Community of the Beatitudes, the community of the famous Father Jacques-Philippe, we hope to lead you into a new encounter with the great mysteries of our faith, And a renewal of your devotion to the Lord.
0: Join us May 23rd through June 2nd, 2020. Please visit discerninghearts.com for a full itinerary and learn more about the Discerning Hearts Trinitarian pilgrimage to the Holy Land. A Prayer of St. Ignatius of Loyola Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will, all that I have and call my own. You have given all to me. To you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and your grace. That is enough for me. Amen. We now return to the doctors of the church, the charism of wisdom, with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. I think this would be a good time, Dr. Bunsen, to discuss this particular part of the world at this particular time. For much of the discussions that we've had, they've occurred in the area around Italy, the Holy Land, uh, the uh, the eastern regions of Christendom, now we've moved into a portion around France, Normandy would take us into England, where this is not necessarily a a territory we ventured into in the past. No,
1: No, yeah, you're absolutely right. And there are two things to discuss. The the first, of course, is the, the state of affairs in Northern Europe. Uh, in particular, northern France and into England. The other is what sort of flows from that, and that is that we are now, as we've been saying, in the medieval epoch. And any discussion of the church, any discussion of the great figures of this era within the church, raises the Titanic issue of investiture, and the two really come together in this era. You had Europe emerging out of uh, what is euphemistically and and so incorrectly called the Dark Ages. Some would argue, in fact, that the Dark Ages were continuing. You had, in previous centuries, these horrifying invasions uh, from the Magyars, from the East, who ravaged much of Eastern Europe, the Norsemen, the Danes, the, the Vikings, who descended on much of northern Europe, England, Scotland, and Ireland uh, ravaging, and burning, and destroying. One group in particular, called the Norsemen, settled in northern France. And they were, through the work of the church, gradually civilized, and became what were known as the Normans and lent their name to an entire region of northern France, of of Normandy. And through their conversion, through their transformation, they became Christian knights and ardent defenders of the church, of the papacy. Now, feudalism, very, very briefly, was the social and political structure of the age. In which you had a hierarchy of fealty. In other words, a, a hierarchy of obedience. From the peasant who relied on the local lord to the local lord who gave obedience to a higher lord, to the barons, to the dukes, and of course ultimately to the king. It was a system built on loyalty and service, fealty in return for protection and political rights, and one very much built on service and obedience. Why is this important? It's important because the church, as one of the key players in medieval civilization, was involved in feudalism. It had to be. And bishops and abbots became landholders, became participants in this political structure. Now, that brought with it great opportunity because the church was a a major landholder, it was a stakeholder in the political system of the era, but of course, as is obvious, it brought great dangers and risks. Because if a bishop was a landholder, was a participant in this feudal system, it meant, in a way, the danger of having two masters. One is obedience to the pope and the church, The other is feudal obligations to the king, uh, in some cases even to some of the local barons. And out of that emerged a pernicious practice called investiture, in which the abbot or the bishop, the archbishop, would receive from the hand of their lord In this case, usually the king, for example, in the situation that we're going to talk about. Symbols of their office. Now, this denoted the idea of receiving a benefice, receiving position and status from a secular leader. The implication of that was that the sacred aspects of the office perhaps also came from the secular leader. Certainly, the medieval obligations were. But the symbols of office, then, were a struggle, an investiture uh, in which the bishop or archbishop would receive the ring, the, the crozier, and other symbols of their office. The implication was, as I was saying, that they were now beholden to a secular leader. And the great struggle to end investiture became a recurring theme of the Middle Ages, it it took up the energies and even the lives of popes, of archbishops, of saints uh, and was a major flashpoint between the church and the secular leaders of the time. So much so that popes were deposed, popes were driven into exile. Leaders, uh, especially the Holy Roman Emperors would appoint anti-popes, in other words, false claimants to the papacy who they would try to impose on the church. It was a bitter, ugly, and at times very violent uh, struggle between the Holy See and secular leaders, and also between abbots, bishops, and archbishops and their own secular leaders. And this was a situation uh, that complicated the lives of almost every bishop and major prelate of the era, and Anselm. Was certainly one of those.
0: You would have to have an extraordinary charism to be able to live in this time, particularly as an abbot of a Benedictine community, because all the situation that you just outlined about the political situation, we have to realize that Benedictine communities have the potential to thrive in these in these cultures, because of their containment and their the agriculture, the learning, mm-hmm. the abbot would have to maintain that stability and their autonomy. They would have to be pretty savvy and have a charism to be able to negotiate all those particulars.
1: oh yeah, absolutely. The monastic communities were. Like small cities, mm-hmm. they were filled with places of learning. You had these incredible the scriptoria. You had these these amazing libraries for the time. They were also places of sanctuary, of refuge, where people came for medical care. They were areas where local communities found food, where they learned how to uh, be good farmers, to husband the land, uh, to know and learn about. Uh, Farming and animal husbandry uh, the monasteries were also uh, great places of pharmacological development. I mean, it's difficult to appreciate today just how significant the monastery was to the life of the average person. The abbot who was in charge of this not only had the care of his monks but he also had the care of the whole community and then as, as we were just discussing, he was a player in the feudal life of the era. So, for example, as Abbot of Beck, Anselm not only had to deal with the, the local archbishop, it was the archbishop of Rouen, who was from time to time, depending upon the archbishop, determined to bring the monastery under his sway uh, because of the monastery's influence, but also because they, they felt a desire to exercise that sort of ecclesiastical. But he also had to deal with uh, the local lord. In this case, uh, it was uh, Robert de Beaumont, uh, who had his sort of feet in two places. He, of course, was uh, somebody who exercised control over lands in Normandy as one of the, the Norman knights, but who also had properties in England. The same can be said for the Monastery of Beck. As was the custom of the era, lords would give donations of land to various monasteries. In this case, the, the abbacy of Beck became a landholder, not just in Normandy, but also across the channel in England. And so one of the tasks of the abbot was to travel to England to oversee the proper care and functioning of the various land holdings uh, that the monastery might have. In that sense, too, he would probably be caught up again in discussions with uh, the local lords, local barons, uh, who might control surrounding land, who might have issues of territory and uh, law and other issues. So your typical abbot uh, had a host of duties. It was not by any means, an easy job. And it was because of those required visits to England that Anselm more and more became involved in the life of the English Church.
0: In going forward, we're going to discuss that time when he does become the Archbishop of Canterbury as well as the many contributions that he has uh, left as a legacy for the Church
1: of course, his incredible writings and gifts to the church of philosophy, of theology, and of spirituality. And those are the two topics that we'll be focusing on, of course, in the next episode.
0: Thank you so much, Dr. Matthew Bunsen.
1: Privileged to be with you, Chris.
0: You've been listening to The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen. To hear and or to download this program along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation which is fully tax-deductible to support our efforts. But most of all, we pray that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for The Doctors of the Church, The Charism of Wisdom with Dr. Matthew Bunsen.